Oh yeah, here we go, practice acquisition. There are pitfalls throughout the entire process. All right, all right, guys, we have made it. We've made it through Shark Week. And uh, this is the last episode of the entire series. I hope you've enjoyed it. I have uh, picked up a lot of great things. Um, and, and I hope you guys have learned from the entire series. You've heard now, after this episode, from seven brokers around the country. And you have no excuse now to not understand the process or how to approach a broker because these folks laid it out for seven days. So I can't hear that excuse anymore. Today, I'm interviewing a good friend uh, who this is his second time on the show, Justin Schaefer. Uh, we'll get into what he does and who he works for. But we talked a lot about some really, really key things like what are you actually buying? The goodwill, what does goodwill mean? Um, we talked about the expectations of a broker in general, like what should you expect from a practice broker as a buyer. We, we also talk about like, what are, what are the expectations for a seller as well? So that was cool. Um, my favorite question in this entire week was how do you differentiate yourself so that you stand uh, alone uh, against the pack to try to position yourself to get into first position and win these uh, really good practices. So I asked Justin that. Um, just had a great conversation with Justin. We, I think we fin final, uh, finished the episode with um, what are his thoughts on sellers staying back and staying on staff and the pros and cons and how we look at that. So just a great episode and a, and a, and a dandy. It's a dandy to end with Justin and the East Coast. I hope you all have enjoyed Shark Week. I know I have. Um, remember, I'm a buyer's rep, first and foremost, and a consultant. Uh, we love to make sure that our clients are successful in these transitions. So please reach out to me if you're interested in that type of thing. Um, but we do this for fun to educate you guys and to um, make you all better practice owners. So without further ado, let's let's hop on into the last episode of Shark Week. Acquisition Uncensored. The truth when buying and selling a dental practice. And now your host, Michael Dincio. All right, all right, guys. Welcome to another episode of Shark Week, Dental Acquisition Uncensored. We're moving right through the process, but hey, today is the last shark that I'm interviewing. We've had a lot of fun. I hope you guys have uh, picked up some great tips about the process in general and what you can do to position yourself. But we, we I was holding back the, be, the, the best for last, uh, Justin. I'm getting ready to introduce my friend, and, and you've met him earlier on in the, uh, the season. Um, his name is Justin Schaefer. He's the National Director of Practice Transitions at Aprio, a national broker, uh, but has a ton of experience on the East Coast. And that's where we're lend, uh, landing is the East Coast um, and talking about transitions in that world. So, Justin, thanks again for being part of the program. It, it's going to be back. I'm a little bummed out. We talked about me being a co-host on the first episode. I haven't heard anything from you, so that must not have 
must not have came to fruition, but I'm excited to be back and uh, talk about transitions and anything else that might come up uh, during our 20 or 30 minutes. You know, we actually have a running poll if people liked you or not. The verdict's out. We'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens there. This doesn't sound um, like it went well, but it's okay. <laughs> I had to get through Shark Week, all right? There's lots <laughs> going on here. But uh, but yeah, buddy, thanks for joining us again. And um, so the overwhelming theme of Shark Week was really how to get buyers into a position where they can actually win these, these practices. And we've heard so many things. Um, well, wait a second. Let me back up. Justin, tell us a little bit about a- Aprio. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just jumped right into it. No, 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 no. It's, a, it's a top thir- It's a top 35 accounting and advisory firm. Uh, we've got about a 52 person dental specific team. Uh, a transition to us could be as, as you've been on all sides of these transactions, someone looking to start a practice, somebody looking to expand a location. Uh, I just focus my time and energy on those individuals that are looking to uh, sell or transition their practices. So it's a great group. We try to leverage technology as much as we can. Uh, just uh, announced a West Coast merger in uh, Northern California, which is where you and I met, uh, but primarily focused in the Southeast and Northeast for now. My favorite part about CPA accounting professional firms mm-hmm. that take on acquisitions um, is, is that you can rely on the numbers a little bit more heavily than, than what you might with some of the other practice brokers. Um, I, I, I find that practice brokers, there's a huge range of um, um, what I say professionalism or, or a huge range of just acumen in the, in the, um, in, in the evaluation process. And so when, when you are working with a company like Aprio and they are listening to practice, you know that these numbers are coming uh, from a CPA slash accounting firm, which adds a, 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 ni- a nice touch. Is that fair to say, buddy? Yeah, I tell you what it does. It streamlines a lot of the communication with underwriters from banks because it's coming from an accounting firm. We're not going to try to push too hard on an ad back if we don't really fully understand it or don't have it documented. Like the financials from our end, it's to be very streamlined when we're having those communications to really get to a number for, for cash flow. And I think that eliminates a lot of nonsense and gets the buyer right from the beginning of setting a good tone of we're not going to have to go back. And you've been through those negotiations where you're picking out 17 things from a PL or a tax return. And it's it shouldn't be that way. It should be very clean, professional. Here are the numbers. Here's the historical data. And let's move on with the negotiation. Actually, let's make that a topic of today. What are the expectations of a practice broker? That way our, our listeners can really um, identify if a practice broker is doing their job or not. I think I get a lot of calls. It's like, is this normal? Or like, I, I feel like the communication is an issue or, or I don't quite understand these reports. Like, I know there's a, a wide uh, variety of the way people do things, um, but in your opinion, Justin, what is a practice broker's, uh, what are our buyers' expectations or should be of a practice broker? Does that make sense? I think you got to start out on the right foot with asking the seller, what are you looking for? And that could be a variety of things. Are you looking to stay and work for another three to five years? Are you looking to retire tomorrow? Are you looking to align with the larger group? Are you looking to sell to an associate? Because 25 years ago, you sold to an associate and that opportunity came. I think my responsibility is streamlining that process for any potential buyer 
I've got to be direct with my seller and say, what are you ideally looking for? Something is keeping them up at night. And that could be the, the legacy of their practice. It could be a financial concern. It could be something to where they want to, uh, they're tired with the COVID of, of the HR and the billing and, and all the stuff that comes along with being a practice owner. And they just want to do dentistry. Until you uncover that piece of it, it's unfair to bring a practice to a market because your seller's not going to want be a good match until the the or the buyer. I'm sorry, he's not going to have a good match until the seller determines what they want. And I think that's the foundation of their relationship. Is this isn't selling a house? Unfortunately, the seller is going to have to be involved. You don't just hand the keys to someone like me and say, you know what, I want you to handle this. I, I wouldn't even take that engagement. They're going to have to be involved with everything from the structure of the deal to the uh, conversation with the staff to the interviewing of the buyers, to the potentially showing the practice. And you got to set that tone early or else all parties are off to the wrong start. I, I love that. You talked about kind of the mindset and the expectation of the seller. That's that's perfect because oftentimes when brokers struggle, um, they might not ever admit that their client is being a, a cuckoo bird. Mm-hmm. Um, but oftentimes that is absolutely the case. Just like me as a buyer's rep, frankly, I need to to get to to check my clients and their emotions and everything about them. So it, it is both sides. It's a very emotional process. I think that's the best expectation uh, of a practice broker is to hold that seller accountable to the to the process. What about though the mechanics of the deal, like? the the buyer facing part of it from a practice brokers but what should buyers expect the the broker to do for them in these transitions i think confidentiality is key for us um i think one thing that when from the beginning that you got to, the buyer has to know um that everything has remained in confidence and i think that the financials and having clean reporting it is a small industry as we talked about on the last podcast uh, and i think that you've got to have the tone set to where the buyer trusts that you're representing the deal just as much as you are in the seller and everything that you're saying from a communication standpoint is correct. And what I would think that is, is adamant from the buyer side is that they want to work with somebody that responds, but they also want to work with somebody that's friendly. This is the first time a buyer is going through this process. And a lot of times they could ask a question that a lot of times, you know, I've been or someone snippy or someone won't give them an answer. Like, You've got to sometimes press pause and explain it to a buyer because although we've done it a bunch on both sides, the buyer, this is the first time they're doing it. And there might be dumb questions and they might not know they've got to make an offer within three days because there's 10 other buyers that are looking for it. Picking up the phone or just saying, hey, this is the expectation. This practice is located in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a million five in revenue, right? It's netting 35 to 40%. You and I know that thing's going to go in a second. Buyer doesn't necessarily know that. So, like, you got to be compassionate. You got to be sensitive to the fact that that's a big decision for the buyer. What's your buyer coming out with? Like, the profile of your buyer is what? Three years, 500, 600,000 in student loan debt, maybe just starting a family. Like, they've got a lot going on. And you got to keep that in mind, although you're representing the seller, that that's the mindset of your buyer right now in this market. Yeah. And, and as you were, as you were talking about that, you know, oftentimes the most successful practice brokers have the most, the the ones that are most successful, quote unquote, because they have a lot of listings. 
So the busier the practice broker, the the less they are sensitive to the to the stuff that you were just talking about, right? Because if they're managing 40 listings at a time, half their information is not accurate. They're just kind of pushing it out as fast as they can. And that touch, that that light touch to the buyer does absolutely get missed. And it is a huge, huge life and business decision. It, it, it does get missed. So it sucks because the, mo- the more successful you are as a practice broker, the more of that soft touch you lose. Am I off on that? Yeah. And I think the one thing we're trying to do is, is use a lot of technology um, to, to what we ask from the sellers, putting it a man, putting it together the package in a way that the man, the, the buyer understands. So we'll put reporting together in addition to where the practice has been historically, but also candid areas of improvement. If our client was one buying this practice, here's 10 things I would look for in terms of maybe increasing the price for patients, maybe redoing recall, maybe opening up another day week. Now, I know that won't affect the approval process for the lender, but it's just us being able to evaluate a dental practice and saying, these are the opportunities that if I was buying the practice, I would focus on and package that together with our listing on top of the normal tax return profile, et cetera. See, Justin's vying for my my job, um, but that's beautiful because that's exactly that's exactly what a good practice broker should and would do. I would never be able to help every deal every in the country, right? So there's there's too much uh, too many of you out there looking for practices, but the fact that you do that is is huge because it gives you a playbook or a transition plan of some sort for opportunity so that you can actually offset what you lose every transition, you're going to lose something. Some patients are not going to jive with you or whatever. So you got to all have a, a game plan for offsetting that. Um, can, can I ask you something? How frustrating is it when someone comes to you and says, but this practice has so much potential because we never <laughs> say that. Like, is that not something you're like, of course, every practice. Let's talk, they, let's talk like, about that. Let's like, talk about that. On. So are you buying? So from a, from a shark, and folks that have been listening to the Shark Week, it, it, it's totally a pun. The, the brokers I'm interviewing are not sharks, but there are a lot of sharks out there. The The reality of it is, yes, a practice broker should probably not say what Justin just said, and that is you're buying opportunity here. Why, why is that not a, a good thing to say? Because I... I get mad when I hear something like that. You do too, because you were an ex-banker. So what is the buyer actually buying? Well, what what I guess my point is that we're not going to sell a practice on the potential. You and I know it has has to historically cash flow so that a buyer can afford to pay their student loan debt, their mortgage, their car payment, and still be profitable. Everything else is upside. And we just keep that in mind when we do our valuations and we do our uh, financial analysis. And a lot of people will say, well, there's two more operatories available. That's great. It's going to be 300 grand in equipment. Plus you got to get patients in there. Like if you do that, that's great, but it has to work historically. You have to know that the deal has to cash flow, or you're just spinning your wheels and you are putting a buyer in a bad spot, which we refuse to do. So that's the question then. What is a buyer buying? And, and, and I always have a hard time explaining goodwill in a very simple way, but that sounds like a pretty good definition of goodwill. 
how would you describe goodwill and what the, what the buyer sh- is buying? You know, what, what it, you said it, it's historicals, but yeah. yeah. I, I mean, our thing is the buyer has to be able to live exactly like they've lived. They have to be able to pay all of their personal and their new debt with their new practice loan and still be profitable. If all three of those things don't align, that's not the right deal. And, and I could have a practice listed for $500,000 with a $180,000 net that might be a great fit for somebody that already owns a practice and has excess cash flow, but that's not the right fit for a doctor that's able to produce seven to $900,000 in dentistry and you know five years out and ready to work three to four to five days a week and, and, and make it a $2 million practice. You just got to know where the fits are. Like it's just, you can't match things up just to match them and close a deal because that, that that'll come back. Yeah. That that's the, that's the ugly stories we've all heard. So more, more on this. So when you're looking at a business and someone approaches you um, to list their practice Um, I like what you were saying because you and I talk the same language with the banking, but the, the historicals, when you're looking at a practice, I I like the idea of boring, meaning flat lines, Mm -hmm. predictability, no craziness to me that that is the definition of goodwill is predictability for the future. Right. Right. So does a practice, in a sense, a practice should be worth more if it's more predictable. If, if the cash flow justifies it, right? Like if the historical numbers are strong and there's certain limits, which we all agree, I think, in the industry that you could price out practices based on cash flow or loan to gross or multiple that, that are standard. I'm not going to go to end those today. There are higher and low limits of each of those. And if you can prove that a practice fits in a higher uh, category, Absolutely, you could charge a little bit higher, but it's got to hit those parameters. It's got to be fee for service. There's got to be enough production. It's got to have a good hygiene department, good staff, right? Good lease. Like there are a lot of things to look at that I think are, are not into, you know, in intangible. Like you should be able to identify those things. And we could all agree when a practice deserves a higher purchase price and when one candidly does it. And if a seller comes to me and says, Hey, I've been declining revenue for the last three years. So the first things I'm going to say, that's a fixed your purchase price. That's understood from the beginning. If not, then that's just not the right fit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, it's totally- and the other question we get is every time someone gives me their financials and say, what's your, what's your practice worth? My answer to that is who's the buyer, right? Michael, like, are you representing someone that owns, like, is your buyer an associate? Someone's got three offices, someone that's got 10, That'll all affect your purchase price because different strings are attached to every one of those deals. And you can't just paper and put a 60-page valuation together and say, this is what my practice is worth. Because it's worth whatever some buyer is willing to pay. And in our analysis that we do, there are different groups of buyers that have different values based on what they look like, not what the practice looks like. I I like what you said there because the market dictates the the outcome there. And that has been uh, a theme of this entire week that uh, something's worth what someone's willing to pay for it. So mm-hmm. it, that's a, that's, that makes sense. That could hurt you or that could help you in a negotiation as a buyer. 
mm-hmm. um, knowing when that could help you uh, is key. And, and knowing when you're outgunned and if you want something, you're just going to have to pay more for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked to the guys in, in Texas and they were talking about 15, 20 people looking at one practice. They literally take applications. Right. <laughs> They're looking at applications per practice. So that has been the theme of the entire week. And I asked all the practice brokers that we interviewed this week, um, how does a buyer get into first position? What are some creative ways? How can they stick in your mind, Justin, as the practice broker? Because to me, if you're head to head with five other dentists, you got to differentiate yourself somehow. And to me, that's through the broker because the broker has influence with the seller. So how can they impact you in a great way? And I'm sure the other guests have already dictated or or talked about this one. It's, I'm not going to go into specifics, but work with recognized dental specific CPAs, attorneys, and or lenders and have those conversations with those individuals before you come to me, because we are going to ask those questions. We ask, are you working with Mike Denzio? We ask if you're pre-qualified with XYZ. That shows us that you've taken the time and could streamline the process and get through the closing and, and not have to uh, make the process more painful for our seller who's our client than somebody else that, hey, would have to start from scratch. And we don't know, right? You're busy. Is it going to take them two weeks to get on your calendar? Is it going to take them three weeks to get a pre-qualified with somebody? Is there another accounting firm that, that you know, they're their first dental client that's going to be looking at our valuation and we know there's going to be a lot of back and forth? That is absolutely taken into play. Um, when someone's looking at, and I would say the second thing is, you know, there's a lot of practices that that if you go in and you know start associating, have a conversation with with the owner about joining or buying or, or talk to other attorneys or go to networking events. Like, there's a ton of business out there for everybody, ourselves included. But I think the more active you are in the community, the more active you are within the dental advisory networks, the better off you're going to be to find a practice, but also thrive in that practice. So essentially the more prepared they are, the more you can trust that they can make it to the finish line. And the other thing with the buyer is know what makes you the, the least anxious. For example, if it, if, if you're going to get anxiety about borrowing a million dollars to buy a practice, but you don't get anxious if, if you, and you've done these thousands of times, do a startup, like you're not going to have any patience, like really have a heart to heart with yourself as to what's the best path for you, right? Like one of the things is going to make you more anxious, right? And that's if, if you don't have a patient base and you borrow less money or you buy a practice that's more expensive, but you got to redo the whole thing over time, but you got patients coming in the door, talk with someone and just put the pros and cons of, of both, but also the pros and cons of staying where you are as an associate, or if you're working with a DSO, like what does that look for you in 36 months and map out the opportunity cost of each of those, uh, pass, I would say. Yeah. I, I think in general, if, if I lined up all, you know, 30, 40 of, of, of my, my clients right now, I would say the majority of them haven't asked themselves enough questions. And I think that's key because I, I find myself educating my clients, but then almost educating them on things that they haven't thought about yet that mm-hmm. they really should have. 
Um, they should have thought about, can they handle the clinical? They should mm-hmm. have thought about, um, are they a good leader? Because the practice that we're looking at has a small team and they, they're going to really need uh, cross training and whatever, like whatever the scenario is, do their uh, strengths align with the practice that they're buying? Um, I, 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 I don't think our, our buyers are doing that enough, but I, I don't know if they've gotten the training for that either. But, but the, I'm having the same conversation with the sellers. So, but if you're having a conversation where you have a prepared buyer that's thought out their four or five options, and I've got a seller that comes to me and says, Hey, they've, they've thought out that they want to work for another five years. They want to sell tomorrow and work one day a week because their daughter just moved to Colorado. Like those are the more prepared sellers. Somebody comes to me and says, I just want to know what it's worth. They're, we're not ready yet. Like we're, there's seven other conversations you got to have until you reach that point in time. And both sides have to think about it. But the awesome transitions, as you agree, was when you have a buyer and he or she is ready to roll and we've got a seller that's very dialed in on what they want. It's awesome. It's the it's best easy. part of the gig. Yeah, it's easy. It's, it's easy. Hey, let's talk about um, when sellers want to stay on. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of that lately. And it's interesting because the sellers have this idea of getting that big check. And ha- it's kind of like a, they're getting their cake and eating it too. Like they get their big check and then they have these like carrots of like, hey, I want to stay on for three days as well. By the way, the practice will be fine. Yeah. What are your What are your conversations on the other side of that table? Because I feel like nobody is thinking about <laughs> what that means for the new owner. So we have it from day one and let's just profile practices from like, if they're less than 1.5 million in revenue, I will gauge where the buyer's production capabilities need to be to buy the practice and and come up with the amount of dentistry that's needed to be done. And I can fill out the math on where my seller will likely land in terms of their employee agreement remaining. And that might be one day a week or it might be two, but it's certainly not going to be three because as you know, a lender is going to hit them with what's called a production gap and the, the seller cannot eat up the buyer's cash flow, which is have your take and eat it too, right? They cannot afford to make the new loan payment plus pay all their bills, plus now pay my seller an unreasonable amount of compensation post-sale. If you are north of 3 million in revenue, you in all likelihood are going to be required to stay on. So let's have a conversation about what that looks like and know if you sell, are you prepared to stay on three days a week? You just told me you wanted to to only work work one, but you, it's a numbers game that can be quickly calculated within reasonable certainty before you even get the listing. That should be no surprises there whatsoever. There should be tweaks with that expectation. Back to the expectations of the practice broker, right? Mm Because without a practice broker having that conversation, it's like, it's just like the worst conversation. Like, like us buyers are the the most evil people in the world that want them out of the practice. And and no, that's, the, that's, in all likelihood, the lender is the one saying they can't because they can't afford it, and they got to right. pay their bills and they've got a family, right? And, or, or the or the lender just says decline, and then the buyer is sitting there like, why? It's a great practice. It's well because yeah. So, um, so. Back to that, staying on that topic, it, the buyers oftentimes think, and they have this like romantic idea of, 
of keeping the seller on and training them into the greatest dentist business owner of all time. And, and Justin's same, same question is why is that bad for the, for the buyer? I, I, I let's go into it just a little bit more other than numbers. Maybe what's that mean for the, the team? What's that mean for the patients? And I just think like the expectation we set with the sellers is they're buying the practice. They're paying you a lot of money. You're now back to the associate. They should get to choose what marketing they should do. They should get to choose what they're scheduling. The, the like That's not your decision anymore. And honestly, there's a lot of uh, great tech that the sellers, in my experience, who have came back and worked a day or a week are like, I wish I would have done that. I didn't know that. I could have text messages to my patients. I didn't know I could do all these things. I didn't know the capabilities of a website or using the latest technology and how I could do that or how I could get that in the office. I I just was cruising the last 10 years like this. And I didn't know there could be things that could be done to make the practice better. I mm-hmm. wish I should have done those. And that's yeah. usually what you hear. That's exactly it. That's that's spot on. So it's it's always like a a struggle of power a little bit. I've been in the room multiple <laughs> multiple times where seller stays on, buyer's now the owner, and there's like this weird like this. The buyer says, "Hey, we're going to do it this way," and the entire mm-hmm. room looks over to the old the older doc seller, and <laughs> the older doc seller is kind of like. That's uh, not my practice anymore. And there's, there's just this weird dynamic going on. Uh, and um, so, so it sounds like you're in agreement in, in with me. That is, it's better just to make a clean break. Uh, correct. And I think too, like a lot of it is the communication uh, is unfortunately have to be kept quiet right until closing. Like that's just the way a lot of these transactions have to occur. So the buyer is not going to get introduced to the staff until after the, the seller gets their funds, right? Unless there's something to where they're already working in the office or, or everyone's open with it. So I think that, again, creates a little bit of anxiety, but these deals work. And if a buyer has the right team going into the deal and they've got their accounting and their consultant and their attorney on board, right? These practices work. It might be a nerve wracking week or so um, until you get to know the staff. But after that, our experience or my experience is 99% of them, right, work from the financial side and work from the uh, practice side. So, like, you got to have faith in that that piece of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, last last question. Okay. Finish up the, this episode, and that is, what's so different about the East Coast deals compared to the rest of the country? I think it's based, I think the thing that's maybe shifted the market is with COVID over the last two years, buyers are coming from different regions to come back home. So we're seeing a lot of people that maybe went to dental school and say, hey, I've got family because my spouse is working from home and we need help with like the kids. Like the relocations we're seeing are probably on 80% of our deals right now where there's someone that's not within you know 20 to 30 minutes of the practice. They're outside that 30 to 45 uh, minute database. And I think um, just within the Southeast and state income tax and, and Florida is driving a lot of stuff. Um, and I think that the overall market is going to continue to stay hot on the entire Eastern seaboard, but specifically the Southeast, uh, because a lot of people like the warmer weather. Um, but it's, it's still a great market overall nationally. We're seeing, um, across the board. 
we talked a lot. We we talked a lot about that actually this particular week about how transient, um, how transient deals can be more of a challenge because there's a lot more things to think through. Mm-hmm. Where you've got someone moving, getting credentialed, buying a house, um, and that can create some anxiety with the seller. Um, you know, so uh, is that is that spot on? I mean, th- there's a lot it, more to think through there. Yeah. It is too. And like you think, like a dentist might go to to undergrad one place, which you could be in Boston. They could, then they could go to dental school in Texas, but then they grew up in. Georgia, right, or or vice versa, and like uh, we, we prep our sellers is is this is a national search we're going to do, right? We don't know, um, we don't know where the buyer is going to come from, so we're just going to start broad and narrow it in. Uh, but again, it talks about the candidates we look at are the ones we talked about that are that have done their homework, done their due diligence, not know exactly what they want, but have an idea what they want. Justin, you're the man. I I, uh, I always enjoy talking to you. We get so much out of these calls. Um, final tips. Just what would you tell a buyer if they're trying to get into position with you or just last minute tidbits that you might want to throw out before we close this amazing shark week down? I'd just say just be confident about the process. Uh, be patient. You're going to find a practice. And when you do find the right one, it is absolutely awesome. So do not get discouraged. Keep looking, keep getting creative on how you look, whether it's through me or somebody else. Uh, Do not give up on the process because it is a very rewarding profession and career. And, uh, you know, don't give up if you miss out on some stuff. Keep plugging ahead. There you have it, folks. Uh, The final comments of Shark Week, Justin Schaefer with Aprio. I'm going to be putting all of their contact information below in the show notes. Please get a hold of, of Justin to see what his firm has to offer as far as listings in, in all parts of the country, really. And um, yeah, he's a resource. Uh, I, I've known Justin for a long time. And if there's anything that you would like for him, he's he leads with a giving hand. I know that. So um, with, with no further ado, let's shut this baby down and call it. Uh, an end to shark week and uh, a, a successful one at that so thanks again justin appreciate your time no problem talk to you soon buddy tune in next time for another truth-filled episode of acquisition uncensored we want to hear from you interact with your host michael dincio follow us on facebook and youtube comment and subscribe